Howdy, family. Man, it's good to see you. Welcome and good morning. Welcome to Clear Creek. I'm Josh, one of the ministers. If this is your first time, welcome. We're glad you're here today. We say this every week, but I'll say it again. Our mission as a church is to reach the next person for Jesus because every person matters to God. And so if you're new here, welcome. If you've been here a long time, welcome back. We're just glad to see you all. Many of us woke up yesterday morning to um, the horrific headlines of what was happening in Israel. I don't know if you've seen what's going on, but yesterday morning there was a sneak attack by Palestinians firing thousands of rockets into crowded areas, into residential places. A lot of the places that some of you actually walked with me last year when we were in Israel. And if you watched the news feeds, you saw the gunmen going door to door, shooting wives and children and taking hostages and doing horrible things to the bodies. And I'm not here to create a moment of stress, but I do believe that as the people of God, we must pray for peace, period. I believe also that God has a special place in his heart for the Israelite people. And I will tell you from scripture, I don't believe God has done with the Jewish people. And so we want to pray for them today. We want to pray for peace in the region. We want to pray for righteousness to be done and for evil to be expelled and for good to happen. And so if you will, Just as we do for other places, as we did last year for Ukraine, we want to pray today for Israel and for the people there. So let's pray together this morning. Father, it is a horrific thing that we see happening on our screens. But I thank you that you are the God who's overall. We ask now that you, as the good God, will step in, that you will be the God who protects the innocent that you'll bring to justice those who are doing evil. We pray that you would defend the righteous. Father, we pray that for those people we have seen on our screens who have been taken hostage in their own homes, for the people who have been drug off, Father, will you please protect them? Lord, we pray for the nation of Israel, for, for these people that you have for thousands and thousands of years had a special place in your heart for. And yes, as those who have been grafted in to the spiritual line of Abraham, we feel a special kinship to them. And so now we simply pour out our hearts, our grief, our anger, and our anguish, and we ask that you, the holy God, the God of angel armies, step in now. We ask you to not only bring peace in the region, but would you also bring people to know Jesus Christ? That everyone on every side would come to know he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah that so many of them have been waiting for. That they may find life and hope beyond these few years that they live. But find life and hope for eternity. We now pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, on that chipper note, I want to invite you to go with me to the New Testament book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. We're going to dance around some of the passages this morning, but we'll be in Mark here in just a moment. Last week we began our fall series, and we began with two statements, and I just want to remind you of these two statements. Here's the very first statement. From the moment you were born, you have been formed into the person you are today. 
from the moment you were born, from the moment you came out crying throughout the moments of your life, you've been formed into the person you are today. Your unique personality, your perspective on life, your communication style, you have being formed into the person you are today. Now, for some of us, we go, yay, that's awesome. And then there are others of us, if we're really, really honest, even when we say yay, we also go, huh, there are parts that I don't really like. There are formation pieces in my life that I go, man, I know I have been saved, but I'd like to become different. And so that leads us to the second statement. And this is the really good news. This is the big news, big idea, big good news that we are talking about for the next two months. And simply this, you can become like Jesus. How? By arranging your life around the same activities that Jesus arranged his life around. That Christ-likeness is not something for a select few super high-level varsity Christians. And it is not something that we simply talk about waiting for heaven to enjoy. But becoming like Jesus is the promised gift available to anyone who follows Jesus Christ. And it happens... When we arrange our lives around the same activities that Jesus arranged his life around. In other words, we cannot simply attend a service and expect to become like Christ while leaving Monday through Saturday unchanged, unorganized. And so over the next few weeks during our time together, we're going to be exploring what it means to become like Jesus. And the series is simply called Practicing the Way. Jesus Christ was called and called himself the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because of this, early followers, before they were ever called Christians, took on the name of followers of the way. That Jesus is the way and we follow him, but also not only do we follow him, but as we follow him, we become like him. And we experience the way, the hidden, almost secret way of living that God designed everyone to enjoy and to experience. And we're going to take these historic 15 spiritual practices that have been used throughout the centuries by followers of Jesus, but first seen in the life of Jesus. And these 15 practices are the way that we're going to begin to explore what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus. And I'm going to invite you over the next two months to begin adopting one or two of these. Don't try them all necessarily, but try some of them. They may fit in your life in a way that blesses you and helps you to become more like Jesus. And where we're getting these from and where I'm really drawing a lot of this great information from is from a wonderful book by a man named Dallas Willard. And the book is called The Spirit of the Disciplines. This book changed my life about 20 years ago, and I want to share some of what it talks about. And so every week, we're going to look at a couple of the practices. We're going to look at the definition of the practice, then we're going to look at why it's important, and then we're going to look at some very simple ways to begin practicing it in your daily life beginning Monday morning. How does that sound? Everyone on the same page with me? Yeah? Okay. So here's what I want to do. Before we dive into it, I need to give you one framing And this may be the most important thing you hear over the next two months, so dial in. In fact, I've given you sermon notes. If you want to fill this in, take them home with you, I encourage you to do it. On the back side is group guides, so you and your group can study and talk about this this week. In fact, if you're not in group, you go to the lobby this morning. At the next step table, Evan Aldridge, who's right back here. Evan, would you just wave real high? There's Evan doing the Vanna wave. There you go, right back here. He would love to help you get into a group, okay? So here's a very important thing. I'm going to invite you to take a look at this. Here we go. If you will, Matt, let me take control over here. I want to show you now that historically there are two categories of spiritual 
practices. These two categories are practices of abstinence and practices of engagement. Practices of abstinence means that you abstain from something. It's the I'm not going to do certain things practices. And the practices of engagement, well, these are things like study and worship and celebration. They're the things that we say we will do, that we will get involved in. Now, here's why this is so, so important. He's going to take the 15 practices and divide them into these two categories. Here's why it's important. Many of you will know that historically, sins have been divided into two categories. Some of you will remember this if you've grown up in the church. There are sins of commission, the things that I should do but I don't, and sins of, excuse me, things that I should not do but I do, and then sins of omission, things that I omit, meaning I should be more loving, I should be more joyful, I should be more gracious, but I'm not. Here's what I need you to hear this morning. This is why this is so powerful. If you're like me, there are places in your life where you go, I wish I could do better in this area, or I wish I didn't do this thing. Here's what Christians for 2,000 years have known is that these practices, such as abstinence and engagement, if you find that there's an area in your life of omission, something that you should do but you aren't doing, the problem is your do muscle isn't strong enough. There's areas where you need to be strengthening your do muscle. I should be loving. I should be generous. I should be gracious. And they have found that engagement practices actually help us overcome the areas of omission. And if there's areas in our life where we are just controlled by a particular sin, things are just dominating our lives. Christians have found that abstinent practices have actually helped overcome sins of commission. And so this may be a very helpful way for you to figure out what practice might be best as you're looking at your life. Are, you, are there areas that you're doing things you should not do or areas where you should be doing things, but you're not? This will help you as we go through it. And each week, we're going to look at a couple practices This week, we're going to look at the first two practices of abstinence. Because if you're like me, you've already got plenty to do. You don't need someone saying you need to do more things. And so we're going to practice some things that take stuff out of our lives. Because before you can put new things in your house, how many of us know you've got to clean out the junk that may be sitting around already? And so we're going to get into that this morning with two practices. And here's the very first one. Some of you are going to love this. Some of you are absolutely going to hate this. Are you ready? The first one is the spiritual practice of solitude. Now, just a show of hands, how many of you, when you hear the word solitude, a.k.a. being by yourself, how many of you, when you hear that, you go, that sounds amazing? Anyone in? Okay, look around, look around. These tend to be more of our uh, people who get filled up being alone. Now, how many of you, when you hear this, you go, that sounds absolutely terrible. Like when Dante was writing the Inferno with its nine layers of hell, this has got to be one of them. Anyone in here? Yeah, being alone, you don't like it? We've got a few in here like, I want to be with people. That's my spiritual gift. So why are we talking about this? Because these spiritual gifts are meant for your good and mine. In fact, why in the world would anyone want to be alone? That sounds absolutely terrible. For some of us, aloneness is very, very painful. But here is the reason this is so very important and so very powerful. Let me give you a definition of this first, because Jesus practices as well. And then we'll talk about why it's so important. Here's the definition. In solitude, we purposefully, that's a key word, 
abstain from interaction with other human beings, denying ourselves companionship and all that comes from our conscious interactions with others. This is not just rest or refreshment from nature, though that too can contribute to our spiritual well-being. He's saying that this isn't just you're just wanting to get out in nature, although that's good. Solitude, rather, is choosing to be alone and to dwell on our experience of isolation from other people. Again, why in the world would anyone want to do this? This sounds horrible to be alone. Here is why it is so powerful and so important. Why we should do this. The spiritual practices are about, and write this down, this is so important, they are about freedom. Spiritual practices are always about freedom. The reason that you practice your scales if you're playing the guitar or the piano is so that you are free to play music well. Discipline for the sake of discipline is not the point. And the spiritually mature person is not the person who just does a lot of disciplines. The spiritually mature person, the one who has grown in these practices, is the person who in the moment comes is able to do what he or she wants to do in that moment. So freedom comes as we practice this so that in the moment where you need the power of God, the grace of God, the presence of God, you are more open to it. This is all about freedom, including being alone. Now, the reason some of us find this so difficult is because when we are alone, we are alone with our thoughts. Anyone else know what that's like? When you're by yourself, you hear yourself. When you're with people, what do you hear? People. When you're with people, what do you see? People. And by the way, people are funny to watch. Have you ever just gone people watching? This is the best thing to do. If you ever want just a great night, 11 o'clock, Walmart. You're welcome. It is magnificent, the parade of humanity and what you get to see. But in solitude, you aren't distracted by others. You are stuck with yourself. And for some of us, we don't really like the people that we are because we are confronted by the areas of life that are not as they should be. And so solitude. Why should we practice this? Again, it frees us in so many ways. Here's the way that solitude frees us. Solitude frees me from misplacing my, this is key, identity. It frees me from misplacing my identity in relationships or from the temptation to use others to find my contentment. Isn't it true that some of us are defined by the people around us and when we're not with them, we don't know who we are? And isn't it also true, some of us, I have done this, maybe you've done this, where I'm tempted to use people for my benefit and in solitude, I'm able to begin to distangle myself and my identity from the people around me where I begin to know this is who I am. I am a beloved child of God regardless of what someone says, what someone does, how they treat me, how they think about me. Here's the reality. Right now, yes, I'm teaching, but also in the back of my mind, I am always struggling with that little voice that says, I wonder how they think I'm doing right now. Am I engaging? Am I funny? Do I have beard crumbs because I ate a bagel this morning? What are people thinking when I'm preaching? And it's just part of life. You can't take your identity away from people until you are away from people. This is why this is so very, very important. Solitude frees me from default patterns of interaction. What do you expect from me? What are you looking for from me? How do I try to please you or deal with you? Or how do you, I get from you what I want to get from you? 
Now, Willard shares a very interesting research project. This is a weird one. This was relating to mice. Evidently, there was a group of researchers who decided, I don't know why, but they decided that they would see how much drugs it took to kill mice. Why? I don't know. But here's what they found. Willard writes this. It takes 20 times more amphetamines to kill individual mice than it takes to kill them in groups. Experimenters also find a mouse given no amphetamines at all will be dead within 10 minutes of being placed in the middle of a group on the drugs. In groups, they go off like popcorn or firecrackers, which, by the way, I just got to be honest, when your description of mice dying as popcorn or firecrackers, that's really messed up. But he goes on. In our world, we talk a lot about being individuals, but our conformity to social pressure is hardly less remarkable than that of mice. Isn't it true that when you're with people, you're tempted to be like them to fit in? Your identity is melded around those you're around instead of finding your identity in the creator who loves you, made you, and knows who you're supposed to be. But here in solitude, we begin to see who we were meant to be. Jesus understood this very, very powerful sway of other people. Do you remember in the very beginning of his ministry, it starts like this. Very early in the morning, Mark chapter 1. While it was still dark, notice this, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Before he did anything else, in fact, the very first thing we see in Jesus' ministry before he begins his ministry is he gets alone with God. Why? Why would Jesus, God in a bod, need to have solitude time? Because as God in flesh, he too is tempted to be defined by those around him. In fact, very interesting, the very next verse, we're told that when he comes back, his followers say, where have you been? The crowds need you. In other words, before he could show up for people, he had to know who he was before them. And so Jesus, God himself, if he needs solitude time, how much more time does Josh need to be alone, to be reminded who I am before I'm with other people? And so let me give you just a couple very simple ways to do this. Because this is one of those things that I think we can try to bite off more than we can really chew. When I first tried this, this has been a few years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a whole day and I'm going to get alone. I'm going to do it when I have the first day by myself. I'm going to get by myself. It's going to be epic. Do you want to know how long I had to wait until I found a free day on my calendar? Forever. There's no such thing as a free day. I found instead I had to choose what day was going to be free, schedule it, and then I had time for it. You may want to do this today. You may want to take out your calendar today and pick a date sometime in a week, two or three, and say, this is the day, this is the time. Now, don't spend the whole day on it. If you're like me and you do that, you're going to find that you're bored and you're not sure what to do. Some of you, if you're like me, you think, oh, I know, I'll take podcasts and books and I'll take all sorts of stuff with me. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what solitude is about. It is not about taking other distractions. It is about being alone with God. And so I remember one of the first times I did this was at a place called the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. It's a beautiful place, a bunch of monks who are wearing robes and all very quiet. And I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be such an epic experience. I'm going to have these deep moments with God. He's going to show up. He's going to speak to me. It's going to be great. And I went out. I remember I went out to this beautiful little garden area. I just sat there and I thought, I've got all this stuff I'm going to pray Would you know I was done praying in about 15 minutes and I had nothing else to say? 
I was like, oh no, this is going to be a long three days. And so I went for a little walk and I began to see the birds and thoughts began to come to me. And then you begin to have those moments where you go, God cares for them. How much more does he care for me? I can rest in the fact that he loves me. God designed them a particular way. He's made me a particular way. I'm so thankful for who I am. And so here's just a couple very simple suggestions. Number one, find small moments to be alone. Don't necessarily bite off everything at once. Maybe enjoy that commute to work alone. Maybe take 15 minutes, just take a breather, go into another part of the house. If the kids are quiet, you just go be by yourself on your break. Instead of going and sitting with a bunch of people, maybe go find a bench somewhere, but find small moments simply to be alone with you and with God. Now, if you're like me, your mind will begin to wander and you'll begin to think about all those things. You'll begin to have those arguments about with that person and you're like, oh, and then I would have said this and then I would have zinged him and I would have won or I would have convinced them and this would have happened. And if you're like me, you might find those thoughts come to you and you go, this isn't what I should be doing with my time. But instead of trying to suppress them, recognize those may be the very reason that you are alone with God right then. So if your mind wanders, just talk to God about it. God, this is who I am. This is what's going on. This is where I am feeling. Now, that's the first one. The second one we're going to move very quickly through. But these two go hand in hand. The first one is solitude. Now, the next one, if you didn't like solitude, sorry. Here's the next one. It is silence. How many of you have small children? Anyone in here with small children? How many of you think this one sounds amazing because you have small children? This is going to be a good one for some of us. For others in here, you go, no, 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 I don't want silence. But let me give you a definition of it. So that way we understand what we're talking about. Silence, according to Willard. In silence, we close our souls off from sounds, whether those sounds be noise, music, or words. Total silence is rare, and what we do, what we today call quiet, usually only amounts to a little less noise. Many people have never experienced silence and do not even know what it is. So you hear the hum of the refrigerator. You hear the car noises or the sirens. What is silence? It's this time where you separate yourself and you close yourself off from the sounds and the noises of the world around you. A few weeks ago, I went to Chester Frost, thought I'm going to have some solitude and silence is going to be great. And it was great until all the lawn care workers showed up and started mowing and everything else. I'm like, what? Noise, noise, noise. It's everywhere. It's like you just can't get away from it. But silence can be difficult for us because it seems very close to death. In fact, according to scientists, it seems that one of the last senses to go for most people before they die is the sense of hearing, the ability to hear. It closes us off. And oftentimes silence reminds us that we are mortal, that we do not have all power, and that one day we will die and meet our maker. And because of this, many of us do not want to be alone with our own thoughts in that silence. And so we busy ourselves and we always turn on the noise, always turn on the music, whatever it takes to keep this sense of I'm alive and everything is okay. Now, there's another part of silence. It's not just closing ourselves off from silence or from noise, but it's also the practice of not speaking. Now, this is the part that for me is hard. I can be by myself, but I'm going to talk to myself out loud. But silence is not just the noise around us, but the noise that comes from within us. 
Why in the world would we want to practice silence? I want to show you a passage from the Old Testament. How many of you remember that Old Testament prophet, Elijah? You remember that moment in Elijah's life. He's performed this great miracle, God through him. And now this evil queen, Jezebel, she says, I'm going to kill you. So he goes on the run. And we're told this is what happens in Elijah's life. Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mount of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So he goes off by himself, solitude. He goes into a cave, more solitude. He wakes up and the Lord speaks to him. And he's like, God, I'm alone. She's after me. Life's hard. And God says, come on out to the mouth of the cave. I want to show you myself. And so Elijah does. And then what happens is incredible. In verse 14, we're told this. A powerful wind tore the mountain apart. But the Lord was not in the wind. There was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in in an earthquake. And then after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. In other words, these big, loud things that we assume that's where we'll meet God are not where we meet God. But in the very next line, it says, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. Is it possible the reason 21st century Americans don't hear from God is because we are hearing too many other things louder than God? Friend, God is closer to you than you realize. And I am firmly convinced that God wants to speak to every one of his children. The problem is most of his kids are too busy listening to other things. The practice of solitude with silence gives us the ears to hear the whispering voice of God that tells you who you really are, what matters most, the goodness of the gospel that you were a sinner, but Christ died for you because of his great love for you. And now you have the guarantee that you will be with God forever. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have spiritual gifts to bless the body of Christ. You have a purpose in the world to bless others and share the good name of Jesus with others. This is what we are told when we're with God, but when we are covered in sounds and noise, we miss the truth of God's word to us. It's no surprise that immediately after this, God then begins to tell Elijah what truth is. And the voices he had been listening to are not the truth. And so why do we do this? Very quickly. Silence frees us to hear the thoughts that we often suppress or ignore and hear the voice of God. It simply lets you know, this is what God sounds like. I'll refer back to that wonderful Abbey of Gethsemane. It's a place where they practice the spiritual practice of silence. In fact, anywhere on the main grounds in the buildings, whether it's the Abbey, the chapel, the place where you eat, the library, all those places, you're not supposed to be talking. In fact, I love it. They have these signs posted everywhere. Silence is spoken here. Why? Because it's in the silence that we hear from God. Friends, how many of us need to hear from God more than another voice today? How many of us are just kind of tired of the 24-hour news cycle that continues to give us bad news and doom and gloom? And hey, I'm not glossing over it. There are bad things happening around us, and there are bad things that seem to be bubbling to the surface. I get it. But how many of us don't need to hear more of that? We need to hear the good news of God. This is how it happens in the practice of silence. Willard says this statement. He says, why do we insist on talking as much as we do? 
We run off at the mouth because we are inwardly uneasy about what others think of us. People who love each other can be silent together. But when we're with those we feel less than, secure with, we use words to adjust our appearance and elicit their approval. Otherwise, we're afraid our virtues might not receive adequate appreciation and our shortcomings might not be properly understood. In not speaking, we resign how we appear to God. And he goes on to say, and dare we say, how we actually are. We say, God, this is just who I am. Jesus, he got this. At the end of his life, right before he died, he was on trial. And when he was being questioned, notice what happens. When he was accused, Jesus made no reply to the great amazement of the governor. Of course he was amazed. Do you guys know anyone who never feels like they have to justify or validate themselves, especially when they're on trial for their life? No, of course not. And yet in silence, it's this great freedom that says, I do not have to justify myself to anyone else for the judge of creation knows who I really am. And if Christ says I am justified, then I am justified regardless of what anyone else says about me or what I can say about me. And so last quote, silence and solitude go hand in hand. Just as silence is vital to make solitude real, so is solitude needed to make the discipline of silence complete. Quick question, how did Jesus, how was Jesus able to be silent even when his life depended on it? Do you know how? At the end of his ministry, he is silent because at the beginning of his ministry, he went into solitude. Mark chapter 1, he gets by himself so that when he stands before this man who had power over his life, or so he thought, he was able to remain silent. In other words, these two go hand in hand. Being by yourself may be the greatest gift you give yourself ever. And it enables you to do what would otherwise be impossible to do. So let me give you a couple ways to do this and we'll call it a morning. Number one. Again, don't start big, but just find moments for brief silence. So when you hop in the car, don't turn on the radio maybe. Or when you're at home and the kids aren't around, don't turn on the music. Maybe just invite God into that moment. Or maybe when you are at work, like I said, go sit in your car, go sit on a bench. And instead of putting on the ear pods or some sort of headgear and listening to something, just sit and let God speak to you. Just find those brief moments. And then number two. Look for opportunities to practice not speaking. Let's spell that correct, shall we? Just find opportunities. In the moment tomorrow when you're in a meeting and you could promote yourself. Oh, I I did that. I read that book. I know what you're talking about. Instead, perhaps tomorrow, just say, this is a moment to practice not speaking. Let God be the one who speaks for you and through you.